Welcome, everyone, to Bulldog Bites, practical tips for busy general counsel. I'm your host, Mark Henriquez, a partner with Womble Carlisle's Business Litigation Practice Group. I have two special guests with me here today. I'm excited to welcome Jeremy Pilmore Bedford, Her Majesty's Counsel General in Atlanta, and also Andrew Terrell, the Council of Prosperity, Business, and Government Affairs, who's located in Raleigh. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank right. you for having us. All right, Jeremy, Andrew. Andrew, thanks. Now, Jeremy, when I was someone asked me what your title was, and I wanted to make sure I got it correct, I told them that you were kind of like an ambassador, but I know that's not really correct. For our listeners, can you help me understand kind of what what is your role as Her Majesty's General Counsel? Okay, so what it is, is that in a big country like the United States, uh, we have an embassy in Washington, obviously, but because you have 50 states, a big federated country, it's impossible to really understand what's going on in the country if you just sit in Washington. In fact, I think your listeners probably know that very well anyway about the Washington bubble. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we have eight consulates across the United States, and then we have five UK government trade offices as well. So the consulates are like mini embassies. Um, we have about uh, around about 20 people, sometimes a bit more in each of those consulates and we're in all the major cities so we're in Atlanta we're in New York we're in Boston Chicago etc and each of those consulates also covers a territory a number of states around them and we replicate what the embassy does so we have the head of post the consul general we have a press and politics team to try and follow local politics and national politics at local level uh, we have a big trade team uh, we have in Atlanta we have a representative of the Welsh government as well we have a science attache and we have uh, a team that helps helps British nationals uh, if they lose their passport or they get involved in an incident. Um, and we have a corporate services support team as well. So a mini embassy in many ways. Okay. Wow, that's great. I didn't realize it was that size of, of yep. an operation. And what region, what states do you serve out of your Atlanta so I, office? So out of the Atlanta office, we cover the Carolinas, um, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Tennessee. And then we have Andrew up here in, in North Carolina, who is, uh, op- we opened a new office with him as the head in January of this year. He's based in Raleigh. Uh, and his remit is to promote trade across North Carolina. And, and he's our, our number one representative here on the ground to do that. Great. Well, and Andrew, I'm really pleased you were able to join us today as well. Yeah, no, thank so, you. I know you, you've at least uh, have some familiarity with Womble Carlisle since I think you work in our uh, in the same office space in Raleigh. Is that yes, right? Yes, because of the great partnership between Bond Dickinson and Womble Carlisle. Fantastic. And for those listeners that haven't already heard from the other podcasts, we do have a strategic alliance between Womble Carlisle and Bond Dickinson, um, a similar size firm of about 600 lawyers in the UK. Uh, that's been a wonderful uh, benefit, I think, for both mm. firms. And we really look forward to continuing to deepen relationships. We've had lawyers go over to the UK and actually see what it's like. Particularly interesting to me, I'm a what we call a litigator. I know their dispute resolution is the term they use at Bond Dickinson, but it's been very interesting to see the barrister-solicitor issue and who handles stuff in court. So uh, mm-hmm. that's been a great, great partnership. Um, Andrew, you had two words in your title that I know a lot of our listeners are going to be excited about, prosperity and business. So that, that, sounds, <laughs> that sounds good. That's what most of our clients are looking for. Tell us a little bit about, about your role. Sure. And there's a lot of excitement about those first two words, not so much about the third one sometimes, but <laughs> right. uh, it's occasionally necessary. Yeah, governmental affairs we have to do. But, <laughs> yeah, but you, know, that, that, you know, some people view that as the impediment, right? <laughs> but, um, um, yeah, my role in our new Raleigh UK government office is really twofold. One, and my primary role, is an economic and trade role. That is looking for trade partnerships, foreign direct investment, ways in which North Carolinian businesses and UK businesses can work together, ways in which North Carolina businesses can export to the UK 
and looking for areas where UK businesses can export to North Carolina, very much a bilateral trade role. Uh, the second is a sort of public diplomacy, political and diplomatic affairs role, where we maintain relationships with uh, stakeholders, other folks in various civil society organizations to look for other opportunities such as research partnerships, exchanges. Uh, it's really multifaceted and can cover a lot of area. Uh, but my primary role is in trade, economics, business. Great. No, well, that's good, and I, and I want to talk today a little bit about what the uh, what the recent developments mm -hmm. mean in terms of opportunities and how our clients can begin thinking about those of course. those opportunities. Yep. Um, this is kind of a remarkable week uh, <laughs> and, and a day for you as we record early today. Um, I know the prime minister has actually the delivery of the of the Article Fifty Declaration in connection with the separation of the United Kingdom from the European Union. I know. Uh, Article 50, something that a lot of people, including me, didn't even know about mm. a few months ago. Uh, and all of a sudden, it's become, you know, the news and we've had the countdown. Um, and I first should say, I think originally this was planned for last week. And of course, we had the terrible terrorist attack there mm. in London. And my sympathies to, to all our friends um, in London and the UK for that attack. And certainly our hearts go out to those affected by that. But tell us, uh, bring us up to date. I know this is really breaking news. We had the actual delivery of, yeah. the, of the separation. For our listeners that maybe have heard generally about it, tell us, remind our listeners, what does this mean? What, what, what's happening? Right. Now? Well, the, the, the actual uh, letter is a fairly simple letter just saying that Britain uh, is beginning the process of exiting the European Union. It was signed by the Prime Minister last night. And then it was handed over to uh, by Tim Barrow, who's the British ambassador to the European Union, to Donald Tusk this morning at about um, 12 o'clock European time. Um, what that now triggers is a two-year negotiation for exiting the European Union. And this really comprises two bits. Uh, one part is the actual separation agreements, which is all about, like any separation agreement, any divorce, it's about uh, primarily about money. Um, it's about how you divide up the assets and liabilities of the European Union and how Britain pays its, its share of those liabilities and receives its share from the European Union. Um, and the other part of it is about the, Britain's future relationship with the European Union. And the prime part of that is the future trade relationship. What sort of access, what sort of trade agreement will Britain have to Europe's single market after we exit in exactly two years? And then obviously in the, in the meantime, while those negotiations are going on, Britain remains a full member of the European Union up until the end of March of 2019. So two years of no, nothing changing and then, then the exit happens. Gotcha. Now, I think the divorce analogy is kind of an apt one, and I've seen people talk about that. Okay, we got to fight over this. Obviously, in, in a divorce, at least mm -hmm. here in the States, the ultimate decider is going to be a judge or a court, right? Yep. If, the, if, the, if the husband and wife can't agree on how to divide things up or who gets the kids, you go to court. And one thing I'm unclear of is who's the ultimate arbiter or decider? In other words, if there's a disagreement between the EU and the UK over you know, a part of these assets or the money, how is it decided? Is there some board or entity or how, how, how's that, how are those um, no, no, there's things the, resolved? No equivalent of a judge or, or even relate, um, apart from maybe friends of both sides <laughs> who come in and say, come on guys, calm down. Right. Um, but obviously there's lots of different types of divorces. They have very acrimonious ones that are very difficult and costly. And there are obviously very easy separate separations where both sides are 
rational and, and agree on on a sensible outcome for them and anyone every other party involved and Britain is going into this very much wanting to have the, the latter form of separation we want to remain Europe's best friends we want a very close relationship after we leave the European Union and the Prime Minister and her government have made that very very clear all the way along um, we you know we want a successful Europe after we've left it because we will still be in Europe you can't change geography and you can't change several thousand years of history so that will continue. I know one of the items that certainly businesses have been focused on is this tariff issue. Mm. And is there going to be any kind of tariff? Is it even if it's a most favored nation type of tariff? I read an article suggesting even small, you know, two or four percent tariffs might be enough to deter trade. Do you have a sense of how what the process is for deciding that issue, whether there'll be a tariff structure um, um, between I mean, the I, entities? I, I mean, obviously, we will be hoping to continue with zero tariffs as we've got from currently, and the and that. I mean, you're starting from that base anyway. So you'd, you'd have to have some pretty strong lobby groups to come in and start saying on both sides, we want a tariff here, we want a tariff there. Um, there are some, some obviously some very strong interested parties in keeping the current level of tariffs. Um, you know, the, the auto sector, for example, which um, ships a lot of components backwards and forwards, the aerospace sector as well. You know, the fruit growers in the, in the Mediterranean region who sell a lot of produce to the United Kingdom. All of these people have a strong interest in maintaining that level. So we, in theory, it should be pretty straightforward to agree the continuation of the current levels of of tariffs. Um, so that should not, in theory, be a difficult problem. Um, I want to talk in a little bit about kind of the impact on US-UK yes. trade. Is there any role... I guess, for the United States in this separation process. It made me think of it when you said, like, relations in a divorce. Obviously, the United States has close ties both yes. with the uh, with the with what will be the remaining EU members, Germany, France, and those powers, and obviously a long and special relationship with the UK. Do you see a role for the U.S. either governmentally or even in the economic business I side? Mean, I, I, th I think it's got a, yes, business certainly has a very big role in it, and just, you know, to keep saying to both sides, um, you know, trade is a win win situation, business is a win-win situation, um, continue to be rational and don't get emotional, as sometimes can happen in negotiations, be sensible. So I think business has a strong role. Uh, obviously, the US has a, a keen interest in making sure that, that both Europe and the United Kingdom remain strong economically, and therefore anything going wrong is in their interest to try and rectify. But I think it's really in the realms of quiet diplomacy. I think there's always a tendency if people come in and start saying, come on, be reasonable in a loud voice or something, I think you need to that can sometimes be counterproductive. Gotcha. Um, of course, this week, the other big news uh, from across the pond was Scotland. Yes. Yesterday, the Scotland Parliament voted, I think it was 69-59, in favor of a new referendum on independence. Mm -hmm. uh, Scotland obviously had a referendum, voted to stay as part of the UK, but also voted fairly heavily in favor of the Remain vote mm -hmm. on the separation from the EU. Uh, bring us up to date. What What does that vote mean? I know I saw a remark, I guess, from the Prime Minister indicating she thought this was the wrong time for yes. another independence referendum. Is that is at the end of it? Who who makes the decision about whether there'll be a referendum? Well, it, the, the decision on whether to have a referendum on Scottish independence is a decision that can only be taken by the UK government and by the UK Parliament in Westminster. It's what they call a reserve power when devolution was given, when a new Scottish Parliament was set up. Uh, the Certain powers were devolved to that Scottish Parliament and further ones have been given in the last couple of years. Um, but certain powers were reserved, such as foreign policy and independence referendum is definitely one of those. Mm -hmm. So the Scottish Parliament has no jurisdiction to call another referendum. So the Prime Minister is right to say that, you know, you cannot have one because I 
don't think it's appropriate. Um, she has several other things on her side as well in the argument. One is that Scotland, as you pointed out, had a referendum on independence less than two and a half years ago. At the time, all parties, including the Scottish Nationalist Party, made it very clear that this was a once-in-a-generation opportunity. So to ask for another one less than five years after that is not really very democratic. Uh, you can't keep asking the one way, existential one-way question like that until you get the answer you want and then that's it. Um, secondly, actually, the opinion polls show that opinion hasn't changed since our last referendum. Mm. And even more importantly, opinion polls show that the Scottish people don't want another referendum. Like nearly somewhere between three-quarters and two-thirds are very against having another referendum. They found it very, very divisive. It divided families, divided friends, it divided people at work, and they don't want another one of those. So I think that okay. you know, the, the Prime Minister has a lot on her side in that, that case. And, and just to add one extra point there, it doesn't necessarily make sense until we know more about the negotiating process mm -hmm. and how relations end up being in terms of exactly what is in the final agreement and if it's taken, you know, a vote in Parliament, how things are operated. It's not really fair, I think, uh, I think is the government's position to ask for another referendum because you're evidently asking, you know, one minor uncertainty for an even greater uncertainty. Yeah, those are great points that I'm not sure our listeners focused on. I certainly wasn't aware of. But right, it does. If part of the if the premise behind this new request for referendum is Brexit, which is, yes. which is the, the, the departure, right. it would seem to make a lot of sense to wait and see what that really means and what that looks it's, like exactly. before asking people to vote yeah. on yeah. it. So they know what they're voting on. Yeah. yeah. I, I read also, correct me if this is the case, even if Scotland ended up, were allowed to have a referendum and wanted to become independent, mm -hmm. they'd then still have to go through the process of becoming an EU member state. Yes, is correct. that right? Yeah. So, that's correct. That's so correct. it wouldn't be an automatic, they wouldn't have a status quo in the sense yeah. of just, no. oh, we're still part of the well, EU. That, they I, would essentially break off, then apply, and so there'd be a long process in that, any that, event. That's correct. The, I mean, the, Scotland would be a seceding body from the United Kingdom and therefore would be a brand new country uh, and international law terms and there's precedent from the breakup of Yugoslavia and the former Soviet Union on that and therefore it would have to apply to join the European Union alongside all the other countries that wish to apply to join the European Union it would have mm. to meet the a key communitaire which also includes things like actually meeting the uh, the Maastricht criteria for a budget deficit of only two and a half percent of GDP and also joining the euro um, neither of which would be easy or um, very popular in Scotland. Right. Um, the other the other part of the uh, United Kingdom that's in the news is Ireland, yes. and I know there was some talk about discussion about what would happen if there were a unification of Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, and would that be a way for Northern Ireland to essentially remain part of the mm -hmm. EU or become part of the EU? Any um, Again, for our listeners that may not have been following that, what's the thinking there and any sense of where, it, what if anything may happen on that front? Well, we, uh, I mean, we have in, in Northern Ireland since the peace process, we have a system of government which is forced coalition where the different parties have to form a government together um, to avoid the situation which happened in the past when they had devolved parliament installment before the troubles started in the early 19th, late 60s, early 70s, uh, where you had a parliament that was overwhelmingly dominated by the Protestant majority at the expense of the Catholic minority. So this forced coalition makes sure that all the different communities in Northern Ireland are fully represented in, in the parliament there. Um, and the, the recent problems have been over trying to form a new coalition there. Um, the issue around Brexit is less that there is a sort of burning desire to remain in the EU in Northern Ireland. It's more about concerns over whether we can maintain the almost non-existent border between the south of Ireland and the north of Ireland. Okay. If you go to Ireland, you can cross the border and you won't even know you've done it. There are no 
border posts or anything like that. Um, and the British government is very keen to make sure that that remains the case after Britain has left the European Union. Um, it's made easier by the fact that we have a common travel area with Ireland. So Britain and Ireland are not part of Europe's Schengen agreement. So if you need a visa for Britain and Ireland, you can apply to either an Irish embassy or a British embassy, and, and that visa gives you opportunity to go. Um, but if you go to Europe and you need a visa, you need a different type of visa. So we can maintain that free movement to people across the islands after Brexit. Okay. Got you. So uh, thank you. I, I, I don't think I had focused on that. So in part, it's that issue about, okay, you've got the Republic of Ireland, which mm. is the southern part of Ireland, remaining part of the EU. The question becomes, without any border, is there going to be some issue of people going well, from, it's, from Southern Ireland to Northern Ireland and therefore essentially leaving the EU without crossing well, the, a the border? Issue, the issue is that um, for the Irish community, that uh, nationalist community in the north, that um, we don't want to impose a hard border that um, exacerbates tensions in Northern Ireland. We I've want to maintain you. that free flow of people that can go f- across the border easily to, um, without there being any sort of hard infrastructure there. Great. I do want to talk a little bit about the US-UK mm. relationship, and obviously Brexit's the big news, but I've seen several articles suggesting this is really going to be wonderful for the relationship, the bilateral relationship between our countries. And I guess I'd welcome you both to yeah. to comment on that. And I guess I'm interested in particular about for, for businesses, and we've got a lot of international yeah. businesses that may be doing some business there, or thinking about business there, what are some things they should be thinking about or taking away from these developments. Right. Well, I'll say a little bit then, maybe Andrew can chip in, but mm-hmm. I mean, the British government is very clear that they want to take advantage of Britain leaving the European Union to make Britain more global in its outlook and more global in its trade and its business and you know, actually in, in our foreign policy and defence and aid as well. And the uh, and the United States is a big part of that agenda. I mean, the United States is already Britain's bigger single trading partner over nearly 25% of our trade is with the United States. The US is the biggest investor in the UK and the UK is actually the biggest investor in the United States and about the fifth biggest investor in North Carolina. Um, so we are a big part of the uh, the business relationship already with the US. Um, but the UK government also wants to take advantage of leaving the European Union to, to sign trade deals, which we can do on our own once we've fully left the European Union, uh, which is part of the, re- the reason behind leaving the single market and the customs union in due course. So we can do that. And we believe that we can sign more trade deals with fast-growing parts of the world, with pe- places like the United States, more quickly than the European Union can, because we are only one country rather than 28 countries. And there's less need to compromise on certain issues. And we have less reservations about certain sectors of the economy as than other countries do. So that's part of the agenda. And then the other, other thing is actually around regulation and um, flexibility in the economy. And again, there are, will be opportunities as Britain leaves the European Union. Um, Britain already has rightly a very good reputation for having much more flexible labour markets markets in Europe, much more flexible product markets, low taxation, 19% business tax at the moment, um, and a very business-friendly place to operate in. Uh, but we want to go further on that, and that will be easier once we're outside the European Union. Great. Andrew, you want to chime in? Yeah, yeah. Just to add to that, um, this is an extraordinary opportunity for the reasons that uh, Jeremy outlined, but also you have, especially here in North Carolina, I think, a sort of confluence of events and also 
specialty sectors that we are both very, very interested in, in terms of pharma, life sciences, advanced engineering, manufacturing, that make North Carolina a very obvious destination to benefit from this renewed interest in trade. And just on to add on to one of Jeremy's points as well, we had a fantastic event just a couple of weeks ago with the Secretary of State, Elaine Marshall, and she mentioned uh, we just had new research come out of the Department of Commerce that showed actually that the UK was North Carolina's largest foreign employer. So there are a lot of reasons why North Carolina and businesses in the Southeast should be interested in this, many of which are economic, many of which are part of a potential of a new free trade agreement, but many also which are you know, fairly in line with the political objectives of the new administration as well. They've been very uh, bullish about a free trade agreement with the UK, um, and I think that uh, they view that as an area where they can have a significant win. And I think that a lot of companies internationally are looking to the U.S. as well on things like tax reform and other priorities uh, and are fairly bullish about that. And so I think that there's a lot of things going on in the United States that makes it an attractive place for the U.K. And especially a lot of things happening in North Carolina that make it an attractive place for the U.K. I mean, if you look at areas where North Carolina is growing substantially, whether it's in you know tech, life sciences, that little area between Finn and tech, uh, that we're right. trying to get into, right? Right. Um, yeah. North Carolina is far less costly, far easier to do business in than states like California, Massachusetts, and others. So I think that uh, North Carolina can benefit a lot from this. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I think we're very excited about the new office that we have in Raleigh. But there are a lot of factors lining up here I think that businesses should be excited about. Great. No, I think that is exciting. What's the timetable? Is it going to – I've read that we can't – they can't negotiate and at least conclude some bilateral agreement. No formal until, negotiations. You know, no, no formal negotiations yeah, until the actual there, exit. So is it two years from now when you'd anticipate the, an actual new agreement there are, there are, yeah, there are, being negotiated? There are um, – you're right. Formally, the UK is not allowed to negotiate its own trade agreement. Formal, formal negotiations until it's fully exited the European Union. And actually, there is also the issue of you, it's difficult to actually construct the detail of a trade agreement until you know what sort of a trade agreement Britain has with the European Union. However, you can do a lot of sort of um, informal scoping. So you can work out um, under likely scenarios what sectors will be in scope, what sectors will be out scope, out of scope, and do a lot of, this sort of the, that sort of um, work before you actually begin the negotiation. So you can then hit the ground running after... Britain exits the European Union and hopefully conclude the deal very quickly after that. And there are a number of free trade agreements that are in the works or just been concluded as well. I mean, for example, I think the European Union just finalized one with Canada and is talking about one with Japan. I might have those reversed, but I think that's correct. And the great thing about that is that it will form a foundation for when the UK starts to look at uh, having its own free trade agreement with those countries. So it's not as if you're starting from square one. You know, there are a lot of areas where there's already common interest, there's already sort of mutual agreement. There are a lot of places from where you can start. It's, it's not as if you're, which is some of the sense, I think that there's a little bit of anxiety from folks in the business community that, oh, you wait two years and then you have to start from ground zero to go here. It's not quite like that. There are a lot of agreements that are sort of draft out there that we sort of then tweak a little bit here and as a foundation for what will come for the UK. 
So if I represent a mid-sized company here in North Carolina, and I've done a lot of business in the United States, but maybe have had pretty limited exposure internationally, but decide, you know, now's a good time with what's developing, and I want to explore it. Could you tell, what should that business be thinking about? And what are the steps if they either want to say, I want to look at selling more goods in the UK, or maybe opening a, you know, a branch in the UK, or doing some manufacturing over there? What, what are the resources? What are the steps? Yeah. Do they come to you, Andrew? Are there other, you know, I, I think, I do think a businesses are beginning to think more about yeah. that when well, they hear right. all these developments, but often don't really know where to go. Well, I mean, that, yeah, the reason we have Andrew here is he's the sort of on the ground first point of contact all the time here in North Carolina. Um, but we have members of our Department for International Trade located both in Atlanta and in Washington, D.C., who work on trade and direct investment, foreign direct investment here in North Carolina. And Andrew will be able to then tap into their support as well. So if mm-hmm. there was a company that, let's say, in Pharma that wanted to, to look to do business in the UK and establish an office there. Um, Andrew would work with the DIT people who do pharma and life sciences and help give them the right guidance to that. They would work with the right people on the ground in the UK, both DIT people, but also the local development agencies. So if they decided that actually Manchester might be a good place for you, and it, and it often is because it's an extremely good city for life sciences and, and innovation and doing clinical research, um, they would then work with the local development agency there, Midas, and help that pharma company set up a, an office on the ground in, in Manchester. Yeah, uh, there are tremendous resources that we offer in terms of connecting folks and figuring out how exactly they may best, you know, tackle that entry into the UK. Um, Some of your clients and some of the listeners may uh, know UKTI, which has been recently reorganized into DIT, uh, in case there's any question there. confusion. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And so one of the ways we like to think about it is that course, you know, I, I'm the initial point of contact. I'm sort of holding their hand. We're having initial discussions. And then I get our DIT folks who are often specialized by sector, right? And that's one of the areas where we can differentiate because we have DIT folks that are specialized in engineering, life sciences, tech, the creative industry, which then they have some other folks below them who are sometimes even more specialized. So there's a lot of expertise there. And we figure out exactly what we can offer and who you should be in contact with and how we can provide that support service. And again, the way we try to think about it is, you know, I'll sort of open the door and DIT will you know, take your hand and sort of walk you through it. Your services in terms of companies who are trying to see what their financials might look like, you know, in particular areas. Uh, we have some modeling that's done out of our office in London for companies that, you know, are at the right level and have checked a number of boxes and they're sort of ready to take the next steps. Uh, there's there's a lot of services that businesses can take advantage of. Great. And we, we invite them to always ask about it. All right. Well, those are great resources. Thank you both. Obviously, when you get to the stage of uh, of needing legal help, too, you've got the Womble, Bond Dickinson. Uh, of course, Alliance. we'll send them your way. <laughs> um, so you can you can send them to those, and mm-hmm. we, we look forward to working closely um, with those businesses ready to make that leap or figuring out how to make that make that relationship. And work. I just quickly, I want to add on to that too. Uh, we talk about a lot our, our research and development credit and our patent box. So those are two things that if any listeners or clients have um, work in that particular. area, area than I would heavily encourage them to look at because they're quite uh, quite attractive in terms of locating resources in the UK. Terrific. Terrific. No, those are great. Any other, again, we've talked a lot about some of the news events, mm-hmm. and this is an exciting time, I think, for, for, for you, and I'm sure a busy yeah. time, uh, Jeremy, as you're trying to, you know, figure out everything that's going on. Um, for listeners out there, are there other, uh, I guess, tips or things to watch out for or to be thinking about in this transition 
period, in addition to the resources you mentioned, other advice you would want to give to a CEO of a company here in the Carolinas or Georgia yeah. or somewhere else? To add on to that, we were talking earlier about, you know, that you've you've had more conversations recently than, yep. than you know, I would be curious to know what's the most common kind of concerns, questions are that you're fielding from uh, executives and business owners and, you know, what you're advising them and, and what misconceptions they yeah. might have that you're trying to debunk? Yeah, I mean, there are, um, I mean, it's been through different phases. I mean, the first one was just sort of trying to, trying to understand why has this happened and what's going to happen next, which was sort of the first few months after Brexit. And then after that, it moved into more detail, sort of, well, what are the implications? What sort of um, measures do we need to take and what contingencies do we need to take? So they've got more detailed. I mean, my, my advice would be, first of all, there's an awful lot of sort of siren voices out there saying it's all going to be terrible. Often, if you when you look at them, they're actually some of our European competitor cities to, to those cities of the UK <laughs> trying to lure business away from the UK. And, and of course, they have a vested interest in trying to sort of Give the, give the impression it's all going to be terrible when it's clearly not going to be. Um, so the, the answer to that is actually do make sure you are properly informed, do talk to people who who know what actually is going on in the UK, both people like like Andrew and myself, but also to accountancy firms and law firms that have they're on the ground there that can tell you actually this is what it actually means and what the implications are. So you're not lured into making mistakes that you will come to regret. You know, if you were foolish enough to go to one of our European competitors and deal with their high taxation, anti-business environment and their uh, uh, dislike for financial services and things like that, you might then regret it for quite a long time. Um, so you do look in great detail at, uh, before you make any decisions on that as well. So those are, those are the sort of things we've been trying to put right is the misconceptions. Um, and but you know, ultimately, the UK has an incredibly flexible economy. We have our own robust uh, monetary policy framework, which means that the Bank of England and the pound are incredibly good assets for the UK, whereas we're not part of the euro. That allows us to, to absorb the shock of the financial crisis much better than countries like Ireland or Spain, for example. Uh, we have an extremely robust uh, fiscal policy that the government is pursuing to consolidate the, uh, the budget deficit. We have incredibly flexible labour markets compared to anywhere else in Europe very low tax environment, um, tax breaks like the research credits and the patent box Andrew measured mentioned. Um, and, you know, we are in a really strong entrepreneurial spirit there. I mean, we just hosted in down in Atlanta a, a trade mission from the north of England of female-founded companies. Huge amount of, of energy there and really exciting to see that sort of entrepreneurial spirit right across the United Kingdom these days. And um, just from the conversations that I've seen from beginning of January when we opened the office uh, until now, I think that at the end of last year, the beginning of this year, you had a number of data come out, you know, about GDP numbers, labor market indicators, mm -hmm. et cetera, which were quite positive for the UK. And so while our initial discussions, a lot of businesses are sort of, you know, feeling it out, you know, what's happening, slightly cautious, you know, what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, once, you know, that data came out, you have that on your side, you know, our narrative and plus everything else that's positive going on in terms of, I think, a clear outline that the PM is, you know, given in terms of how we're going to approach Brexit uh, was actually quite reassuring to the business community. And I basically saw over the last three months a shift in attitude from businesses of being slightly cautious to being actually very excited about the opportunities and focusing then more upon US, UK, FTA opportunities. And so now more questions are sort of in that line. Of course, those are the kind of questions we can't yet answer, right. but uh, <laughs> there's a lot of uh, optimism and enthusiasm around it. Right. 
Well, and you make a good point that it may take time to explore those opportunities. So while it may be a while before we have that final agreement or know those final dimensions, you know, it may this is a good time to be thinking about it and putting those plans in place so you're ready to capitalize exactly. you know, two years from now with that new arrangement right. or with that new The good product thing line. is mm. a potential FTA between the U.S. and U.K. will be necessarily well thought out. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's right. Because uh, that will about two years to think about it. Yeah. No, that's a great that's a great point. Now, thank you. I appreciate that comments. We do try to leave some time for questions from our listening audience. And I did get a question in from one of our listeners. They ask, how likely is it that Brexit will open up the UK more broadly to private health care providers? And that's, a, you know, a question. Obviously, the UK has got a different health care system than yes. what we experience, good and bad, I think, yeah. for people involved in it. What What are your thoughts on that, Jeremy? Um, the, I mean, the, the there will be no fundamental change in terms of the National Health Service will continue to be the way that the vast majority of people in Britain get health care, and that's free at the point of delivery. Um, what has been ongoing, though, for quite some time is that the government of both political colours actually have been trying to leverage in more private sector efficiencies into the National Health Service um, and try to, to try and improve the productivity of delivery of health care, because um, obviously if you've got an ageing population like all developed countries have, and you have finance resources to, to fund that, um, you need to improve the productivity in the healthcare. So there, there is scope for private companies to work within the, the bounds of a national health service to deliver more private sector, so more efficiencies into that system. Um, and we, we do have a private sector, healthcare sector outside the national health mm. service, um, but it's still only around sort of seven or eight percent of GDP. And there are some big US healthcare companies in that space, such as HCA and, and Arcadia, for example, mm. who have quite big investments in the UK. Okay. I know here in North Carolina, because of our focus on med tech and healthcare as well, mm -hmm. um, we're, we're hoping to have an event in the coming months around access to the UK market for some of those efficiencies. Because if you can get in there, if you can become a supplier to the NHS and you can bring some of the private sector efficiencies that we've developed in the US over to the UK, I know there's tremendous interest in that. But there's still a lot, uh, there's still not too much, I think, understanding among especially some of the SME, healthcare, and med tech companies about how to really approach that. So that's yeah. one area that hopefully will uh, will provide a little bit of knowledge for North Carolinian and companies. And just another point on top of that, that if you can get your products, your drugs, your products, your medical devices approved by the National Health Services, uh, National Institute for Clinical Excellence, because the NHS is so big as a healthcare provider, most other healthcare providers in Europe and elsewhere, even globally, actually follow their lead. So if you can get into the NHS because it's so big, they, people know it's going to be good standard and therefore it's easier to get to sell elsewhere. Mm. Gotcha. Great. No, that's helpful. Well, and obviously pharma is a big part of that. I know yes. that's uh, that's part of what uh, Andrew's mentioning with North Carolina, and we've got a mm. significant presence in that area, and I know that's often in partnership with some of those UK. Yeah, yeah North Carolina has a bright future ahead of it in terms of life sciences, and especially if it can take its expertise in life sciences and mesh that with computer programming and biomanufacturing. You put those things together, and North Carolina has a winning recipe. Mm. Yeah. No, that's exciting. And I think that's true. And listeners will know from our other podcasts, you know, we've got North Carolina companies doing a lot in the area of sensors. We had a podcast on that and some of the artificial intelligence issues that are coming along. And I do think they all go together to make an exciting new industry. Heart uh, robotics, I, yeah. all sorts of interesting Robot things yeah, coming exactly. out of the triangle. No, a lot of, a lot of things happening here that, that, you know, that could expand and certainly would have that application on mm -hmm. both sides of the pond. So that's exciting. 
Um, I wanted to move to the to the fun part of our oh, the podcast, quiz. the quiz. I know Jeremy's <laughs> been coming. nervous since right, the yeah, beginning. Um, and we may, you know, and Andrew, Andrew's here to help. So, uh, you know, phone a friend. If he yeah, needs, if he needs assistance, we've got a phone a friend. Teams and things uh, a phone a friend <laughs> option. So um, we do do a quiz, Jeremy. I understand you're a bit of an outdoorsman. So, uh, uh, yes. <laughs> so, so uh, we try to come up with questions that have a an emphasis on the great outdoors. It's also springtime yep. uh, and a good time to be outside. So I wanted to talk about parks in the wilderness in our in our questions. So there are four questions. Uh, if you get them correct, we have a very exciting tumbler for you uh, here <laughs> on the shelf behind me. Winston the Bulldog on a Tervis tumbler is yours if you get them correct. In fact, even if you don't get them correct, uh, you'll be leaving. Oh, you'll like be leaving with quiz. the tumbler. So, so you can bring the heart rate down a little bit. A, a consolation uh, prize for being consolation prize for being embarrassed in front of all our listening audience. So, are we ready to go? And Andrea, we'll let Jeremy try first. Then you can help or or disagree if you need to. First is is a pretty easy question. Um, I'll give you choices unless if you need them. But do you know what the most visited U.S. national park is? Uh, the Great Smokies National Park. Wow, he gets it without even uh, <laughs> even a number. That, that's terrific. Congratulations. There's no other correct answer. Yeah, there is, yeah. <laughs> well, and hopefully, you know, being obviously in Atlanta, that you're not far from yep. the Great Smoky Mountain. Any guess on what would come in in number two and number three? Whew, um probably get this wrong probably you i would say yosemite yosemite that's correct that's number three okay and then number two yosemite has about five million a year great smoky mountain as our listeners yeah. may know is over 11 million visitors a year which is remarkable mm-hmm. um given it but it is such a large park with a lot of access points and mm-hmm. it's very popular um and then number two is a pretty famous uh landmark y- y- um oh mount Rush- rushmore not yes, Mount Rushmore, although it may be up there. Andrew, any thoughts on what might be that number two spot? Yellowstone? Nope. It's actually the Grand Canyon. Oh, the Grand Canyon. Oh, Grand, okay. Grand Canyon Forgot. with, with yeah. about six million visitors. Yeah. So I do think the Yellowstone and Mount Rushmore likely would uh, round out mm. that that list as popular national I was just asked, asked Grand Canyon a couple months ago. I should have... And yeah, no, it is certainly, you know, it's a popular spot to, yeah. to at least see. Most and, Americans and want to, to at, least say, <laughs> at least say they've seen <laughs> yeah, Grand right. Canyon. That's right. You can do Vegas. So you do the, yeah. the parks and, uh, and, and the lights in one, in one trip. <laughs> yeah. All right. So our next question is also a national park question. It's about the Appalachian Trail. Um, so about 70 miles of the Appalachian Trail actually go through the Smoky Mountains. The trail is a total of more than 2,200 miles. The challenge for you is can you name the states where the northern and southern trailheads are located? The southern one is in Georgia. It is. The northern one, probably Maine. Maine is correct. Oh, Congratulations. <laughs> All right, two for two. Yes, actually, uh, Mount uh, Cahadin, Maine, is where okay. it starts, and then Springer Mountain in Georgia is the end of the yeah. trail. Um, not all that far from Atlanta. So that is a, you know, popular, and obviously some people hike the whole 2,200 mm-hmm. miles, which Have is... Have you done any of it? Uh, is a, is a feature? two miles. <laughs> two miles. <laughs> well on your way. All right. Surprise. How about you, Andrew? Ever been to the Appalachian Trail? Done yeah, any yeah. Yes? Well, I, I grew up in Hickory. Oh, okay. Yeah, just about an hour north and so every weekend for good middle school high school years dad would take me uh up and we'd spend our summers up there and everything as well so it's been a lot of time up there never went as far as maine though i'll say (laughs) gordon good north carolinian boy it doesn't drift that far north yes (laughs) 
Yeah, and for the less athletic like me, we, we would do the Blue Ridge Parkway, but you'd drive most of it. Yeah. Then you'd, oh, you yeah. know, you'd hike for thirty minutes with a picnic yeah. basket. My mom but was that, more fun. That was our access. view. That was our exposure <laughs> to the outdoors is driving to look at. It. There are <laughs> access points to the Appalachian <laughs> Trail yeah. off of yeah. the. Uh, yeah, so she you can, can do it. You can, I, easy, you can yeah, do yeah, like Jeremy. You can you can hop on. And and do a, a mile or two, and say you you hike some of the Appalachian Trail, and mm. and then uh, get back in your car and mm. and get some hot dogs further down the road. <laughs> All right, well, two for two. Let's see if you can keep it up, Jeremy. With question number three, which also relates to the Appalachian Trail, um, what animal might you encounter on the Appalachian Trail, which scientists believe may have the strongest sense of smell of any animal or any mammal? Um, is it the Black bear. It is the black bear. Congratulations. And the black bear is the only species of bear you're likely to see. Scientists believe that bears can smell as much as 20 miles away, mm. which is pretty remarkable. It reminds mm. me that there was that Dr. Seuss book about smelling, seeing, and hearing yes. really far. But 20 miles is a remarkable distance yeah. to be able to pick up uh, a smell. But congratulations, three for three. The last question is probably our hardest. Um, can you tell us your favorite outdoor location? <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to go for this one, Andrew, first? My favorite outdoor Fa- location? Favorite outdoor location, or either park or outdoor thing. I mean, we talked about the trail. If, you, if, you, if our listeners said, if you said there's one place you've just got to go to see, oh. what would it be? I, I think throws a bit disloyal to the southeast it's probably yellowstone national park which i've been to twice uh, i've got my i've got like a lot of brits i have american cousins <laughs> and uh, one of my american cousins lives in bozeman montana so we've been out to stay with her a couple of times and we've uh, been there in the winter and in the summer and mm-hmm. uh, actually probably the winter was the best time to go because mm-hmm. the tourists weren't there but the animals were low because of the snow uh, mm-hmm. we've, we've seen uh, we saw grizzly bears there we've seen black bears there we've seen a uh, wolf uh, there wow. we've, seen, so we've seen a lot of wildlife so really brilliant i am jealous Amazing. That's a really difficult question. Yeah. I keep thinking because I I keep thinking um, that because I want to focus on the on the U.S. here. I think I, <laughs> I think uh, I think the Grand Canyon, Mount Rainier. I bet you meant uh, choose one. Huh? Yeah, you're supposed well, to choose. See, I can't. I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. That's too difficult of a question. That's okay. That's okay because Jeremy got all four. Uh, no tumbler for Andrew. Right. So, yeah, no, t- no tumbler. We were looking for a reason since we had one tumbler, but we'll have to say your your inability to narrow it down to one. No, there are a lot of great great places to visit, and uh, no, I'd appreciate it. It's am- I'm always amazed. I mean, you mentioned some places that I haven't been. I'm always amazed to have you know folks from outside the country have been you know appreciate some of the stuff mm-hmm. we have here more than our. Uh, more than we do so those are good those are good suggestions um i know you've mentioned some resources i guess before we wrap up do either of you have either speaking engagements or websites or articles or other things if if our listeners say yeah this is great i'd love to love to know more what's the way to what's the best way to either follow you get in contact with you what should they do if they if this podcast Mm -hmm. has made them say yeah i'm going to plan now to to open up a factory in the uk well, we we have a consulate Facebook, which we, where we can be found. Um, uh, both Andrew and I are on Twitter as well. Um, Happy to take direct uh, and, mentions and yeah. messages that way. If you can't make it to Raleigh to meet mm-hmm. in person, um, actually, the the UK government has a very good online suite of uh, websites and things as well as well for all sorts of information, which is just www.gov.uk, um, and from that you can get to the Department for International Trade and their links about what services they can provide as well. Mm. Terrific. 
Terrific. Well, thank you very much, Jeremy Andrew. It's been a real pleasure uh, having you join us, particularly in a momentous week uh, for UK relationships. I want to remind our listening audience that you can find the previous episodes of Bulldog Bites and subscribe to this podcast by going to wcsr.com backslash podcast or in your iTunes or Google Play store. If you have questions or comments, please share those with me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Thank you for listening. Remember, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there. Chew careful.